Hello there. Welcome back to another cross-country ski race report. It's still Hear Her Sports, and I am still your host and producer, Elizabeth Emery. But these race reports are something slightly different than our main episodes. Thanks to the wonderful folks at U.S. Ski and Snowboard, Hear Her Sports is following the cross-country ski World Cup racing season and reporting back to you through these conversations with the U.S. female ski racers. Today is a great one because we are talking about one of my favorite events of the season, the Tour de Ski. And here with me today to talk about her overall win and so much more is Jessie Diggins. Jessie has been on the podcast before in one of the main episodes. That time we talked about all sorts of good stuff, so be sure to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Today, though, we focus on the Tour de Ski. Jessie tells us how she fell in the very snowy day in Davos, other details of that crazy day, waxing, how the wax techs do their great work, how the U.S. team had amazing support, including a PT and a chef, the stress of wearing the leader's yellow bib, where all of those yellow bibs ended up, resting post-tour, and still having the fire to race after more than a decade on the U.S. national team. I loved hearing Jesse talk about the stress of competing. Regular listeners know I often ask guests about competition. That's because being an athlete and being a competitor are not the same thing. Competing can bring up nerves. For me, learning to manage those nerves or panic or pressure is crucial and something I still work on long past my own professional racing life. Nerves can certainly drive someone to push themselves, as Jesse points out, but they can also be detrimental to racing well. Figuring out how to work with all the feelings that come up during competition is different for everybody and is a learning process. What an amazing opportunity it was to have such a thoughtful conversation about it all with Jesse, who has been racing professionally for so many years. If you don't already know about Jesse, she is one of the best cross-country ski racers in the world. In 2018, she and Keegan Randall won gold at the Pyeongchang Olympics, making them the first Americans to win a Nordic Ski Olympic gold medal. Jesse also won two medals at the most recent Olympics in Beijing and an Olympic gold medal at the 2023 World Championships. With that gold, she became the first American to win an individual gold medal at World Championships. The list of Jesse's wins and podiums is too long to go through now, but since we are talking today about the Tour de Ski, I will mention that this year is the second time she won the overall. The first time was in 2021, which made her the first American woman to do so. Now, on to our conversation with cross-country ski racer Jesse Diggins. Well, hello, Jesse. Thank you for being here. It is once again such a treat to have you here and to talk about such a fun and tough and challenging event, the Tour de Ski. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Sure. So, you know, the first thing that I want to talk about is rest, because since the end of the Tour de Ski, you posted twice on Instagram about rest, and it was part of our discussion in your main episode with Hear Her Sports. So I'd love to hear more about where you are now with that, with rest, recovery, reset, or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I've been calling this recovery camp and because it is a training camp, sort of. We're here in Lavinio and it's absolutely gorgeous. We've completely lucked out with the weather. Every afternoon, I sit on the deck in the sunshine drinking tea and eating chocolate, and it's pretty <laughs> much perfect. And it's exactly what I needed, but I'm also starting to get back into some more normal training about one week out from the tour. But what I have learned is that 
the tour de ski is so challenging. It's so awesome, but it's challenging. And so it can be this incredible fitness boost that really picks you up for the rest of the season, but only if you absorb it and only if you can recover from it. And so I've definitely had years where I've done that poorly because sometimes you finish the tour and you're still on this high and it can be really deceiving. Like two days after the tour, I always have this day where I feel like, haha, what tour? Like I could go do it again. I'm invincible. And then usually I go out and I ski too hard and then I get sick. And that pretty much is exactly what happens. So this year I had that day where I felt invincible and I was like, ha, nope. I'm still going to sit here on the deck in the sunshine eating chocolate and drinking tea and I'm not going to go and smash some intervals or do whatever it is that I feel like doing. I'm going to make sure I keep it chill. And as a result, I'm now feeling quite a lot better. And so I had some really good intervals today and they were really productive and I was really happy with it. I don't know what's the right word, but, you know, like experience, yay experience that you know that about yourself. Yeah, you know, I'm trying really hard every year to get better at listening to my body and really reading it and listening what it's telling me. But then there's times where it's telling you like, yeah, I could just keep going. And you have to be a little bit smarter than that and go, no, you can't. Like, it's okay to make yourself rest in order to see the bigger picture come to life. And I think that's one of the hardest things sometimes about being a professional athlete is sometimes you want to go out there and just ski for hours because it's beautiful and it's sunny and the trails are amazing. And you have to hold yourself back a little bit. And that's okay. I was wondering, because again, I was a, a cyclist and... In cycling, there are a lot of tours, and they range from, you know, two days, you know, a long weekend to five days to seven days. But it seems like you guys go from doing a weekend of racing, maybe three days of racing, and then all of a sudden you're doing, you know, the tour to ski, which is so much longer. How do you train for that? Yeah, I think – I don't know if you do. You just mm. sort of – because it is such an anomaly. That's a great – uh, comparison to cycling where it seems to be all about the tours and so you have a lot of chances to practice and for us it's just one and done in the middle of the season and in many ways I think you get some good practice like in period one you have a triple race weekend and then another race weekend right after it and you just sort of get used to keeping it rolling but I think the biggest way to practice for the tour to ski is simply by doing it I feel like I've learned so much from my past years of tours. I've learned that even on the days off, some really light intensity is better for me to keep the engine hot and keep it going rather than let my body think it's okay to completely let its guard down. And that might not work for everyone. That's different for every single person. And so a little bit of trial and error, I think, over the years has been what's really helped me figure out what I need in order to be successful. Well, moving on to the specifics of the race, we can't talk about it without talking about your fall in that snowy, difficult day in Davos. I mean, totally epic for so many reasons. I mean, it was a big fall. It was an incredibly crazy day. Can you maybe describe what actually happened? Yeah. So it was dumping snow, which was really beautiful and absolutely panic inducing for everybody because <laughs> nobody had great skis out there. Yeah. And 
I want to just quickly say I was so impressed with our wax text because everyone was scrambling. It was like, all right, plan A is out the window. Plan B, nope, that doesn't work. Let's go to plan C. How many plans can we make? Like They were just running through different ideas. And I thought we did end up having skis that were just competitive enough to get the job done. And I think as a team, we probably had some of the better ones in the field. And that really matters. But what was interesting was that not every team chose to go on wax. So I was following three Swedish skiers and they didn't have kick wax on. And so we were gliding over a road crossing where they had just shoveled more snow. And so the snow underneath was a little bit different. And I saw them go over it without a hitch and I was like, great. And then my skis just stopped dead because my kick wax stuck. And so I went down so quickly and so hard. I didn't even really know what happened, but I do remember feeling my skis just stop. And I was like, oh man. And my skis like came up over my head. Like it was a little baby scorpion. And I smashed the side of my hip and my ribs on the left side. And at first I thought what I was really worried about was my hip. Like I was looking down in the race, expecting to see blood. I had thought I had, I must have like, ruptured something like I hit so hard and I'm really pretty good at dealing with pain but this was really intense and after the race our team doctor who I happened to fall directly in front of um so he's like oh I know what you did I'm here I'm ready to check you out (laughs) and he was like nope you're okay we don't need imaging it's all good um but I hadn't even really processed the hit to my ribs And then a couple hours later, we were driving in the car to the last stop of the tour. And all of a sudden, I realized like, wow, I can't sit up straight. It's like really painful. And I also can't take a deep breath. And so I was like breathing more and more shallowly and internally starting to panic because I was like, this is a sport based on breathing a lot. And that's going to be a real problem for me with these last two stages. And luckily, we had incredible... PT and massage support and our PT, Susanna Rogers, she worked on my ribs so many times because every time she would kind of push them down and make space, it would reset me and it would feel a little bit better. And so the next race day, she reset me eight times throughout the course of the day. She was just basically on call like three times before the race start because I kept feeling like I couldn't take a deep breath. And every time I would slip, with my kick wax, it felt like a knife twisting in there. And so she was just like, all right, lay down, take a deep breath. We're going to like, I'm going to reset this. So I truly would not have been able to make it through that, I think. Um, Or at least I would have done so with way more panic um, and a lot more pain. I love that you mentioned the wax techs in that whole explanation, because they really have been doing just a phenomenal job. Oh, they're incredible. And It is so, so hard to consistently create competitive skis in wildly different conditions. Like in period one, we had some incredibly cold, cold conditions and we get to Tron time and it's snowing. No, wait, maybe it's going to rain. No, wait, it stopped (laughs) snowing. Just kidding. It's snowing again. Like it was absolutely crazy. And they just stayed calm and kept giving us great skis. And throughout the tour, you know, people think it's hard on the athletes not really. Like we get to show up, warm up, race and leave. 
And the texts are out there for hours beforehand, like in the dark sometimes with headlamps. They're out there testing skis. They're already working one day ahead sometimes. It's truly impressive. And that's why it was so meaningful to pull out that win because that was that was them. And they know that. They know they were a huge part of that. And so I think my favorite moment of the entire tour actually was I had collected just enough of the yellow leader bibs to give one to each of the techs. And then they all put them on and just That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> which was really special because a lot of them were women's size bibs. So it was <laughs> an awesome, awesome team photo. And that was just so special because it's there's not many ways that you can thank somebody for doing something so extraordinary, but being able to give them something that you can only earn one way in the entire world felt special to me. And it was just so cool to see how much it meant to them to see the team succeeding during this tour. Because we had so many amazing performances from so many people on the team. And yeah, I just think it's it's really a team sport. And I think it's important for people to know that. Can we go back to sort of choosing the skis on that crazy day like, how does that actually work? The wax techs present you with a bunch of different options. You guys discuss it. Like, who's involved in that decision and how does the final decision actually get made? Yeah. So the wax techs are out there beforehand and they kind of come up with a lot of different options the night before even. You know, they look at the forecast and they're like, all right, could be anything. So they get out a bunch of clister cover skis. They've probably got hard wax skis in the mix. They've got zeros, which means there's no sticky kick wax at all on the bottom, but you sandpaper it up um, so that in conditions like in Davos, it might work really well when it's just right around zero degrees and snowing. You might be able to get kick that way. And so uh, my wax tech is Jason Cork. He's also my coach and he has been since I was 18 years old, which is really fun. We know each other really well, um, which also helps when it's a panic-inducing day because there's a lot of trust um, laid down from years and years of working together. And I'll show up, uh, I think on that day it was maybe an hour and 40 minutes or an hour and a half before the race. And he's got the best options down on the snow. He's already done a little bit of testing ahead of time with the Solomon text because I'm a Solomon athlete. And so the Solomon service guys will go out there and help him narrow it down maybe with glide outs. Like, okay, we're going to kick out the slowest pairs. And then we'll start testing together. And maybe it becomes obvious right away that some of these skis, I simply can't make them kick. All right, they're out. Like, I need to be able to kick on this course. And then we'll narrow it down to, like, maybe both of these pairs kick, but one's faster. And so we just kind of start eliminating skis until we get down to the final few. And on that day in particular, it was really tricky because – Nothing was really kicking very well or consistently. So we decided let's take the fastest ski that we have that gives me a shot at kick. And I said, okay, I trust you. You guys are still testing. There's time for you to adjust the kick. And so go make these skis. Like we're not going to find a faster pair. I'll go warm up. And then right at the start, Cork was able to adjust the kick and add some or remove some as needed based on the other wax techs who are still out there testing right up until, you know, five minutes until the gun goes off. They're just out there testing. So, um, yeah, it's really cool to see how the whole wax tech team works together and then how each tech works with each athlete because 
it might be a different process. Like some athletes might choose to go on zeros. Some might go on cluster. It might be based on your individual fleet and what works for you. So what was it like skiing that day? Hmm. Or racing that day? <laughs> well, it was one of the weirdest things ever because um, – so I had done well in the sprint the day before. So I started second. And this ended up being a weird disadvantage for those who had done really well in the sprint because your time of day ended up being very bad because um, there was so much snow that whoever was in the front was just plowing the tracks the entire time because it was a 10-kilometer loop. And so even on the second lap, it had already started to fill back in. So we started out and me and the Swedish girls very quickly realized this is not going to work. Like we're going to be caught by people a minute back, by people a minute and a half, two minutes back. It doesn't matter. This will turn into a mass start within five, seven kilometers. And it did. And so especially after I crashed, I needed a second to try to catch my breath and take stock of what was happening. And so I dropped back in the pack. And as soon as I did that, I was like, wait a minute. I feel like I'm barely racing. Like, I feel like I'm not even in level three. This is insane. Like, I was in 20th place and just just moseying along. And meanwhile, the people at the front were hammering, trying to pull away. And it did no good at all because you were plowing the track for everybody else. And so I quickly realized, like, this will be a race of tactics. And this will be a race of the head, not the skis. It won't be a race of the heart. Like, this is just going to be, like, be smart, conserve energy. And also... I suspected I was somewhat hurt. And so I figured I'm going to just try to conserve as much as possible. So I just stayed in the back and chilled for about 17 kilometers and then started to make my way to the front where I knew for the last couple kilometers where there was a big climb that you'll go from zero to 100. It will suddenly be this big push. That's where the break is going to happen. And that's where it happened. And so it was an exciting day, but also one of the weirdest races of my life because I I don't think I've ever had a race where for most of the race, I felt like I was going easier than an interval session. It was oh, a very wow. strange feeling. <laughs> yeah. It was weird to watch too. So it's, it's good to hear your perspective. Well, we've been talking a lot about Davos. What do you want to share about the tour de ski? Oh, well... I think the biggest thing I wanted to share is the fact that it is a team sport because we had so much help behind the scenes. So we've talked about the wax techs. We've talked about our our volunteer, by the way, our PT and MT, they volunteer their time, wow. which is incredible. So uh, they came over unpaid, taking time off from their family, loved ones, their regular jobs, and they came over to take care of us during the tour. So that is extraordinary. And it makes me feel so, so lucky. And you just, you never take it for granted, you know. And we also had chef support, which was incredible because it is so hard to eat enough during the tour, especially when you have race tummy, right? Like, so after the race, your stomach is in knots. It, you know, sometimes you just get a really big stomach ache and it's just, it's just hard. And so I was getting a lot of smoothies, a lot of shakes, a lot of like, really dense little like energy balls. Um, and that really kept me going. And so I felt like 
it was really important for me to figure out how to fuel enough during this tour that I would have good energy every race. And that, you know, if I had a poor race, it wasn't because of something entirely preventable, like eating enough. And so I was really proud of how that went because it was hard and it was a challenge and we were able to fit the puzzle pieces together. And so I think I was really proud of how that went. And I also think something that was interesting for me during the tour is that I was so excited to race. And I'm, I'm pretty much always excited to race, but I also had the competitive fire going. I had had a really nice Christmas break with my family. And um, it was it was just, I came into it like wanting to try to win it. And it's not it's not about winning, but it is cool to feel like I'm going to go out there and try to smash every stage as smart and as hard and as tactically savvy as I can. And that was a, a nice feeling because sometimes when you've done something for so long, you start to wonder if the fire is going to burn out at some point. And it was nice to feel it still going. It was fun to watch you because it was clear that you wanted to win. And that was, yeah. it was great. I mean, and I'm not going to say it didn't come without some angst. I mean, it was when you get in that leader bib, it feels like a big target painted on your back. I mean, in the third stage in toe block, I went out with only a seven second lead. Literally the best skiers in the world are all chasing you down. That's the point. And that's terrifying. I just, you know, I don't love what it does to me, that kind of pressure. I don't love how it feels. I don't like what it does to my body, but there's no denying that I think it brings out some of my best performances. Like, I think it really pulls out the best in me when, I mean, and that's why I've always loved the pressure of relay day because I am always going to pull out the, the best that I can. And it's the pressure of knowing that you're racing for people other than yourself. And so I think that's something I leaned into a lot during the tour when it got hard. I was like, well, I'm not just trying to win this for me. I'm trying to win it for the techs. Like, I want to get them those yellow bibs so bad. And I'm racing for our volunteer staff. And I'm racing for all the people behind the scenes that have put so much into this. So I owe it to myself, but I owe it to them to go out there and really leave it all on the table. And so I think it's this weird thing where pressure is, it is so hard. And it is hard to feel like your heart is just pounding for 10 days straight. Like it felt like my nervous system was just on fire the entire time, which is why this week it's been so important to truly rest and let everything calm down. But at the same time, that's exciting. It's an exciting position to be in. I think it's also fun to figure out how you can manage that pressure because, I mean, the truth is you did have a target on your back. You had a big yellow bib. And, you know, like, how do you deal with that? How do you learn to deal with that? How do you learn to not make it totally destroy yourself? And it sounds like <laughs> you've, you're starting to figure that out or you do figure it out for well, sure. <laughs> it's funny because after the tour that night when I still couldn't fall asleep, like long after midnight because my heart was still just going and I was just hot all the time. Like my body was just actually just burning. 
I was like, man, it'd be really cool one year to try to win the tour without it destroying me. Like that would be a <laughs> cool goal um, to not have it feel like this. Um, but I that's the I don't really know. I'm still trying to figure that out because I think in some ways um, that pressure like it lights me up and it gets me going and it will help pull out the best performances, but it is hard on you for your nervous system to just be on all the time. And it's hard to just, every time you even think about racing, your heart just starts hammering. Like that is hard on you when that lasts for so long. So I did a lot of watching dumb Netflix shows um, and a lot of, you know, talking to my husband on the phone and talking with my sports psych. And I did all the things that I could that, you know, I know make me happy and calm me down. But to some degree, I don't really know what's to be done about it. Well, I appreciate you telling us all that because, you know, I think it's easy to to watch on television you or any athletes who are winning and think, oh, they're just cruising along, you know, their body oh, isn't no. at 300 <laughs> degrees and, you know, we don't know that you're not sleeping and all that stuff. So it's great to hear that. <laughs> I mean, not great to hear, but you know what I mean? That yeah. Thank you for sharing. No, I mean, it. I think it is important to know, like, it does not come easy. And it is not, none of this is easy. It doesn't feel easy in my body or my brain. And I think that's relatable, you know, like, when I when I cross the finish line, it is it is ugly. It is not pretty graceful skiing. I'm on the ground, desperately trying to catch my breath. And I think people can relate to that because I do not make this sport look easy. I make it look exactly as hard as it feels. And that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Well, we're excited to watch you continue racing. It's this coming weekend, correct? Yeah, we're going to be in Oberhof, Germany, and then I don't know if you say it, Gomes or Goms, Switzerland, but that's going to be a new venue for me, so I'm really excited to go explore a new place. And then we head to North America, and I'm so excited. Yes, well, very good, and I'll be there. I'll be waving from the side. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. It'll be fun to see you there. Well, thank you, Jesse. Thanks. Thanks again for chatting with us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I cannot get enough of the U.S. Women's Cross Country Ski Racers. Thank you again to Jesse for talking about the Tour to Ski, and congratulations for such an amazing win. And thank you to her also for the great example of a top competitor who is also a great teammate. If you haven't listened to the other race reports, I hope you get a chance to do so, because they are all just so good. We've been getting a chance to meet the U.S. athletes, learn details about racing and prep for racing, I'm so appreciative of all of the skiers' time. Also, big thanks to Dan and Leanne for their ongoing work to make these episodes come to life. Something I keep thinking about doing these episodes is about how these kinds of stories are exactly what women's sports need to keep everyone interested and knowledgeable. This way, we don't end up dropping into big events, not really knowing what's going on or who the characters are. I hope you are enjoying these World Cup races as much as I am. Tell all of your friends so they can be ready and excited about the Minnesota World Cup coming to Minneapolis on February 17th and 18th. 
This week is a good one to look at the show notes. There are links to Jessie's PT Susanna Rogers, a funny video Jessie made of her dramatic fall. Yep, I said funny. There are also links to Jessie's main Hear Her Sports episode and to Jessie's book, Brave Enough, which is definitely worth reading. Go to hearhersports.com. Also on the website, there are ways to contact me, sign up for the newsletter, listen to all of the episodes, and to support the show by purchasing books on our bookshop page and through Buy Me a Coffee. If you are new to Hear Her Sports, a big welcome to you. And I hope you take a look at some of the other terrific episodes. There are lots of skiers, cyclists, runners, along with athletes from other sports you may not know much about. Every guest has so much to offer. I often tell people I am a better person for having listened to all of these conversations over the years. Send me your thoughts to Elizabeth at hearhersports.com. Hear Her Sports is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find out more about what they offer, go to evergreenpodcast.com. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.